Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called From a White Colonist to a Black Councilman, Celebrating Black History Month. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February the 3rd, 2013. The Jamestown colonist John Rolfe could claim three important firsts in American history. In April of 1614, he married Pocahontas, the first interracial marriage. He was also the first colonial planter to market tobacco. And third, in a letter of January 1620 to Sir Edwin Sandus, the treasurer of the Virginia Company back in London, Rolfe recorded the first known mention of blacks in America. Rolfe's letter describes how in late August of 1619, a pirate ship named the White Lion landed at what is now Fort Monroe, about 30 miles from Jamestown. He says that the commander of the ship, Captain Jope, Quote, brought not anything but twenty and odd negroes, which the governor and Cape Marchant bought for victuals at the best and easiest rates they could. Four days later, another pirate ship called the Treasurer arrived with more Africans. These blacks ended up in America after being bought by Portuguese slave traders in Angola then stolen by pirates off the coast of Mexico, which pirates later landed near Jamestown. And so began black history in America. Fast forward 200 years, and the government census of 1860 identified 4 million slaves in America. And that was only a small percentage of a global trade in human trafficking. Beginning in 1444 and lasting over 400 years, the European slave trade bought and sold 40 million Africans. One of the most counterintuitive facts of history is that Africans in America adopted the Christianity of their white oppressors. And the Civil War didn't end because of Christian goodwill, but only after armies had slaughtered 620,000 Americans, mass death on an unprecedented and unimaginable scale. Many of the four million slaves freed after the Civil War lived into the 1940s. During the Depression, the Federal Writers Project hired people to interview and record first-person narratives from these former slaves, the last first-hand resource that could document their slave experiences. Today, the Library of Congress houses 2,000 such interviews in their original dialect and broken English, in the simply titled Slave Narratives, portions of which, by the way, are available on the one-hour film called Unchained Memories, 
Readings from the Slave Narratives, 2003. <clears throat> Long after the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation, and the 13th Amendment, what Abraham Lincoln called the monstrous injustice of slavery still cast a long shadow over American history. As Isabel Wilkerson has shown in her award-winning book, The Warmth of Other Sons, the years of Reconstruction gave way to a Jim Crow South that was characterized by what she calls a feudal caste system of lynchings, terror, torture, and violence. This was one of the causes of the Great Migration about which she writes. Between 1915 and 1970, six million blacks migrated from the South to the American North and West. When the migration began, about 90% of blacks lived in the South. Sixty years later, only 50% of them did. A picture's worth a thousand words, but no words can describe, let alone explain, the horrific crimes against humanity documented in the book Without Sanctuary, Lynching Photography in America, from the year 2000. And not merely the hangings, but burnings, castration, mutilation, and sadistic tortures like cutting unborn babies from their mother's wombs. There was no due process of law in most of these lynchings, nor any attempt to hide the identity of the executioners. The United States Postal Service even mailed commemorative postcards with pictures of the lynchings. Trains provided free services to the spectacles. Between 1882 and 1968, more than 4,700 blacks were lynched. But significant changes have come. <clears throat> the Pulitzer Prize winner, Eugene Robinson of the Washington Post, explores contemporary black America in his recent book, Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America. There's no longer a single narrative that's adequate to describe America's 40 million blacks, says Robinson. Instead, black America has experienced a radical disintegration that is both hopeful and dispiriting. He suggests that black America has fragmented into four distinct groups that are increasingly distinct separated by demography, geography, and psychology. They have different profiles, different mindsets, different hopes, fears, and dreams. First of all, there's an enormous black middle class that has entered America's mainstream. Robinson calls this a miracle. In 1967, for example, only 25% of black households had a median income of more than $35,000. By 2005, that figure had nearly doubled to 45%. 
the percentage of black households earning more than $75,000 increased from 3% to 16%. In education during that same period, high school graduation rates for blacks increased from 30% to 83%, effectively achieving parity with white graduation rates of 87%. Secondly, there's a black elite that Robinson calls transcendence, like Oprah, Obama, Condoleezza Rice, and Colin Powell. There have always been isolated individual black elites, but now there are enough of them to comprise a critical mass that wields influence in every sector of society. <coughs> there are what Robinson calls the emergence. The emergence are made up of two distinct groups, immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean, and then blacks in biracial marriages, which, by the way, only became legal in all 50 states in 1967. Finally, there are what those he called the abandoned symbolized in the events of Hurricane Katrina. The abandoned are profoundly isolated, and because of this they've created their own cultural ecosystems. They need nothing less than what Robinson calls an aggressive domestic Marshall Plan. This Friday marks the beginning of Black History Month. Despite our dark history, there's much to celebrate. Like the recent story of Michael Tubbs that's been featured in a number of national news programs. Michael was born to a teenage mother and an incarcerated father in Stockton, California. With 300,000 people, Stockton was the largest city in America to declare bankruptcy in June 2012. Last spring, Tubbs graduated from Stanford University, where he won the Dinkelspiel Award for the university's highest distinction. In November, at the age of 22, he won election to Stockton's city council. It's always easy to curse the darkness. Michael Tubbs is shining a bright light. And I hope you'll go to our website, journeywithjesus.net, for resources for Black History Month in books, movies, and poetry. For books this week, I review a title called The Book of Mormon, a Biography. Paul C. Gutyar. Princeton University Press, 2012, 255 pages. This volume is the newest installment in a series of 21 biographies of great religious books by Princeton University Press. It's called The Lives of Great Religious Books. And it's a series of short volumes that recount the complex and fascinating histories of important religious texts from around the world. 
The volumes pair leading experts with classic texts and are written for a general audience. In earlier reviews for Journey with Jesus, I've already covered Augustine's Confessions by Gary Wills and Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison by Martin Marty. Ever since Joseph Smith unearthed golden plates in upstate New York in 1827 and translated what he called their Reformed Egyptian writing into a book, the Book of Mormon and its prophet have been clouded by controversies. The book purports to give a history of our ancient American ancestors from about 2500 BC to 400 CE. Further revelations about a plurality of gods and wives, a divine curse on blacks that prohibited them from the priesthood until 1978, and baptism for the dead didn't help their cause. Neither did Joseph Smith's 30 wives, his murder while he was in jail, and subsequent splintering into 70 sects, 50 of which still survive. <clears throat> Paul Gutjahr examines the Book of Mormon with critical rigor and genuine empathy. He doesn't shy away from the hard questions and quirky history. He shows that there are two broad ways to look at these controversies. The first view sets the bar quite high. Many important Mormons have insisted that the truth of their faith rests with the truth of their scripture, said Orson Pratt, one of the earliest and great apologists for the Book of Mormon. Quote, this book must be either true or false. If true, it is one of the most important messages ever sent from God to man. If false, it is one of the most cunning, wicked, bold, deep-laid impositions ever palmed upon the world, calculated to deceive and ruin millions who will receive it as the word of God." Gutjahr's even-handed treatment allows readers to decide for themselves. But as he also points out, there's a second way to look at the Book of Mormon. In a sense, the many controversies and criticisms are a moot point, given the remarkable success of the movement. Today, the Book of Mormon is available in 109 languages and can be read by 90% of the world's population. There are 150 million copies in print. The LDS boasts 14 million members with 52,000 missionaries in 160 countries. Later chapters show how the Book of Mormon has burst its narrow religious boundaries to enjoy a vigorous life in the broader culture of stage and screen. The 2011 Broadway musical, The Book of Mormon, won nine Tony Awards. But this much is beyond dispute. The Book of Mormon is one of the most important religious books in American history, and so it takes its rightful place in Princeton's ongoing series. The Book of Mormon, a biography by Paul Gutjahr.
For film this week, I review a movie from 2009. It's called Climate Refugees. This documentary film has won two dozen awards for showing the catastrophic consequences of climate change that many nations are already experiencing. For these people, climate change is a matter of life and death, not partisan politics or academic debates. In Bangladesh and Indonesia, for example, where most of the population lives near sea level, cyclones have slammed their countries, thousands killed, millions displaced, food production lost. A one-meter rise in the sea level which could happen in just 10 years, would mean a loss of 40% of Bangladesh's ricelands. And in the next 25 years, about 40 to 50 island nations will totally disappear. Tuvalu, for example, will be gone in 10 years. In Africa, the snows of Kilimanjaro have receded. The Saharan desert has expanded. Rivers and lakes have disappeared, and environmental ghost towns have been left in the dust. The film draws upon dozens of experts to highlight how climate change drives issues of global security, the gap between what international law provides and what human beings really need, between national sovereignty and mass displacement of millions with no place to go. Our climate future is here and now. From 2009, a movie called Climate Refugees. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Anna Akhmatova. She lived from 1889 to 1966. It's called I Taught Myself to Live Simply. I taught myself to live simply and wisely, to look at the sky and pray to God, and to wander long before evening to tire my superfluous worries. When the burdocks rustle in the ravine and the yellow-red Rowanberry cluster droops, I compose happy verses about life's decay, decay and beauty. I come back. The fluffy cat licks my palm, purrs so sweetly, and the fire flares bright on the sawmill turret by the lake. Only the cry of a stork landing on the roof occasionally breaks the silence. If you knock on my door, I may not even hear. Anna Akhmatova, I taught myself to live simply. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 3rd, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenton.